Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Oh, I'm so excited to be back, I have to tell you. New York Times against me. The network's always anti-Trump. Washington Post against me. Facebook was always anti-Trump. They're all working together. It's collusion. It's collusion. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says his tax cut won't save him any money because he doesn't pay any taxes anyway. <laughs> Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And I'm Mike Pesca, the host of the Slate podcast, The Gist, the show about Mike Pesca, <laughs> mostly. And my thoughts, like, is it the news podcast that Randall listened to that inspired him to lose 40 pounds, or is it the news covered on those podcasts <laughs> that prevents anyone from keeping down solid food? That is my question. Um, I have no idea how to answer that question. We, this is, this is, first of all, I want to thank Randy and his colleagues at IAB for bringing everybody over here. This is really fun for us. We usually record both of our shows separately in that in the studios behind that door mark podcasting and while we've done lots of live shows trumpcast was most recently in austin texas this weekend we've never actually done one in this slate office um so you're all guinea pigs uh for this experiment but we're very excited to be doing it and we agreed i've been holding off having my friend Kurt on the show. Mike did not hold off interviewing for, for the gist. So this is Mike's double dipping here. That's true. But when we interviewed him, it was in a really beautiful soundproof studio as opposed to a very spacious, normal cafeteria lunch area. So we get, we get that. <laughs> we'll now. do what we can. Um, yeah. there's, there's enough here for se several interviews. And um, Kurt, I loved your book, but I'm just going to start uh, nitpicking right, right away. The, the subtitle of Fantasyland is How America Went Haywire. You think it's always been haywire? Well, I think we've always had the, the haywire genes in us. And I think in the last 50 years, they became expressed more fully and even more in the last 10 or 20 years. But uh, we always had, a, we always, one of our beauties, what made America great for so long was our, our willingness as a nation and a society before we were a nation to uh, permit uh, crackpots and and true believers in the false to do their thing as because you know that was okay as long as the grown-ups were in charge um your book is a kind of uh well what the british call a wheeze it's a riff um on this theme that sounds bad yeah. a wheeze? no that's I don't like good that. that's oh. a wheeze is fun ah. but um 
this, on this theme that Americans have this proclivity for living in make believe um, for you know for fantasy land, as you say. And I guess the you know the 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 kind of hard nosed question that I was sort of asking myself reading parts of it was. Are Americans really different from other places? I mean, you go back 500 years, you start with the pilgrims and you're soon at the Salem witch trials and it's very persuasive. But didn't a lot of this, hasn't a lot of this happened other places in the world? I mean, there were witch trials in Europe too, right? They burned more witches in Holland than they did in Salem. They burned a lot of witches in Holland. They, they, they didn't burn, they weren't burning witches uh, as late as we were here. And we, of course, we didn't burn any witches, by the way. Uh, before the fact checkers get to us, we hung them in Salem mm-hmm. um, because we're progressive. <laughs> by, yes, yeah, um, comparatively civilized. I, I'm not suggesting that America is unique in this way. I'm suggesting that taking all of my my uh, impressionistic and empir- very data rich empirical data points together over these several hundred years, that these define us in a way they do no other country. Taking one example, certainly today, and I think for most of our history, most of our U.S. history, certainly, um, we are not just more religious than other developed nations. And, and that's how it's usually put, in that kind of anodyne, they're more religious. And that sounds nice. Oh, they go to church more. Good. Fine. Uh, what we are today and what we have been uh, stupendously for the last few decades is more so much more extravagantly, exotically, flamboyantly uh, religious in terms of believing in the supernatural here and now than any other uh, developed country. So that is an example, an absolutely provable example of our extremity and difference. So no, there there are credulous people who passionately believe untrue things everywhere on earth, but more of them here and and historically more important ones of them here— for instance, no other country but ours uh, in the 19th century um, invented a religion like the Mormons. Uh, no other country on earth invented in the 20th century a religion like Scientology. Uh, so we're special. We're but, exceptional. And they don't, they don't have that as much in Europe, but I mean, they have EU subsidies tied to biodynamic agriculture, which is a you know, fantasy about the cycles of the moon with absolutely no science behind it. But if you plant grapes in France, you have to farm that way to get public subsidies. Right. No, exactly. There, there, is, there is unscientific, uh, semi-rational, irrational foolishness everywhere. We are the mother country of fantasy land. There are, there are colonies elsewhere. I'm going to turn this over to Mike in a minute. But um, I just wanted to hit you on sort of a couple other points here. On, on the re- religion, a lot of the book is about religion, and, and you have a lot of fun with it. You have a pretty waspy outlook on religion. You, I have, do? No, you have no problem with religion. You just don't want it to be too demonstrative. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's true. I, I, no, I don't want it to be too demonstrative. I, I want it to be, but another way of putting that is I want it to be subtle and nuanced and, and not uh, leave reason behind when you. When you go to church or pray. Uh, I, and, and more to the point, I don't want it to bleed into the way you think about uh, policy uh, and, and, and the way we organize our society and our foreign policy. And that's what I really worry about uh, in this country. I, I'm, I'm, I am like Thomas Jefferson. 
I guess he was waspy. But uh, <laughs> I, in that, he said, uh, in his great book, uh, Notes on the State of Virginia, where he talked about religion and what this new country of ours shouldn't do. He said, we shouldn't have a state religion. We shouldn't interfere with religion because... If my neighbor wants to believe in no God, if my neighbor wants to believe in 20 gods, that's all fine, as long as it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg. That's how I feel. And, and, and so I can, I can make fun of, of our exotic religious history in America, but it only concerns me and, and gets me on my polemical high horse when it starts picking my pocket or breaking my leg. Right. So as long as it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg. In fact, I always thought of it that way. And it was kind of a charming feature of America. Look, there are these nutters all around us and we could all exist. And in fact, I enjoy when, you know, Louis Thoreau will do a uh, Bravo series on different subcultures. But once they get to 51% of the electorate, or in this last case, 46%, then all of a sudden they elect their guy who picks my pocket and breaks my leg. Was I wrong to countenance them this whole time. I thought I was sort of demonstrating a commitment to diverse opinions. I don't think it was all up to you, Mike, mm -hmm. about whether they were well, confident. What a person who celebrated the eccentricities of America totally. have been blind to the dangers well, as opposed to, uh, you know, d performing a civic good. A, a, a little bit. And, and maybe I, I'm not, I don't end this book on a, on a note of great hope and optimism, but it's possible that we'll get back to, to a place where we can celebrate the great diversity of uh, outlook, mindset, epistemology uh, in America. But um, it, it's interesting, and one does, uh, I'm with you. It, I always joked about how uh, we weren't Canada because essentially of all the wackiness that goes on here. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I am, I am, I take that back. I, I kind of wish we were more Canadian at this point. Yeah. When I compare us to the coolly rational countries, Canada or Switzerland, there's a lot to recommend, uh, the proclivities of the United States up until the time it starts picking your pocket, which is now. Yeah. I mean, the way you, you frame, if I was going to sort of boil down the thesis of your book, we have a big problem with irrationalism in America, and it's getting to be a bigger problem. One big source of that is the religious history you talk about. There are two others you talk about. One is Hollywood and entertainment, and another is the 60s, which was you had the excerpt in The Atlantic. And I think in, in some ways that's the part people drew umbrage at because they, they say, what do you mean you're blaming the, Donald Trump on the 60s? But let's pause first and talk about entertainment. How does that play into fantasy land? Well, so much, and again, in America especially, not only in America, but so much in America from its beginnings, from again, before it was the United States, in so many ways, entertain, everything began to merge with entertainment. One of the great unknown, amazing evangelists, who was an English guy who came over here uh, named George Whitefield in the 1700s, was so successful, maybe the most famous man in America briefly, and, and Benjamin Franklin published his books because Benjamin Franklin, not a great believer, saw a great opportunity to make money here. Whitefield performed his sermons. He didn't just give sermons. He played Jesus. He played the apostles. <laughs> he played the sinner going to hell. And it was, it was baffo. So, so it, it, it is the way in which one of the things I'm talking about, and what, why I call it the fantasy industrial complex, is the way in which entertainment and other realms of life, whether it's religion or real estate or, or everything, uh, or politics, God knows, uh, uh, kind, of, kind of merge. Um, but also, again, there, 
there are movies everywhere. There is television everywhere. There are video games and virtual reality everywhere. But, but Americans do have a special knack for inventing, creating, and immersing themselves in all of these things that, listen, I watch television. I like video games. I like virtual reality so, and so many more things. But it, 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 the, the, the sheer glut of it at this point has helped and, 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 and helps soften the borders between the, the real and the fictional in, in many ways. And, and again, it's not one of the great horrible data points in fantasy land, but all of the ways in which I, I, I just started seeing it everywhere. Wait, when I was young, I, I told my children when they became adults and kept dressing in Halloween costumes every Halloween, we didn't do this when we were adults. So that, that sort of everything as entertainment in real life, as well as in movies, theaters and so forth, uh, is part of, of, of the, the dreamscape that Americans have created for themselves. Um, the other point was, remind me, 60s. 60s. Do you want me to talk about the 60s? Well, let's, let's, let's yeah. save it. Go, go well, ahead. You, know, you, since I've been reading you for a long time, you've been writing about the uh, merging of entertainment and fact for at least 20 years. I remember a New Yorker piece you wrote about Bill Clinton, the entertainer-in-chief, playing a saxophone on Arsenio. Of course, his presidency also coincided with a great economic expansion in really good times. Should we have gone back and look at that and say, that was a tip of the iceberg, um, or that was, oh, what's another great cliche about camel noses and tents? Like, should we have been appalled? When I look back on that period, I don't see it, I, I see it as a continuation of a trend that could probably have been noted for a long time. But I think the big difference is we had institutions that limited excesses that were functional back then, and we don't now. So it's not that entertainment has merged with celebrity, it's that the truth-telling uh, parts of media have really fallen by the wayside. No, I, 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 that my argument in, in most of these uh on most of these fronts, is that the institutions, the establishment, yeah. the mainstream, all of those terrible things fell down on the job, had their jobs taken away from them, their, the gates that they were the gatekeepers of were declared uncool. Uh, that's a big part of it. It, it has been, a, in, in this particular case of, of entertainment and politics, as soon as we had television, and, therefore as, and, and then as soon as we had John F. Kennedy as president, that really began as it hadn't before. Obviously, Ronald Reagan carried it to a new, uh, important new stage, and, and Bill Clinton playing saxophone. So it was, it, was a, it was a, to pick a different cliche, a frog boiling in a warm pot of water kind of uh, uh, gradual process. But then who would have thunk that we would get to uh, the reality television uh, guy and world wrestling uh, a Hall of Famer uh, Donald Trump <laughs> being our president. Um, so yeah, and and as you say, it is it is a matter of 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 giving in a little more and and not applying the same stigma and shame and nah, don't do that that the establishments used to bit by bit. I mean, fantasy is healthy unless you don't draw boundaries around it, unless you don't know where the fantasy ends and reality begins. And with a critique of one of the critiques about Ronald Reagan, now you just wrote this book about him, and you were writing all this stuff at the time, was the thesis that he, that he himself didn't know where fantasy ended and reality began and that he would merge plots of movies and realities. And he did do that a little bit, right? Um, but the, the, the 
thesis here is that we as a country are doing that, that we don't know when we leave the movie theater or turn off the video game. And it becomes easier and easier to do because it's fun to, to, to uh, you know, go out and... and I guess it's fun to do cosplay. I, I personally have never done it, but but <laughs> you um, LARP, Kurt? Uh, no, I was always wondering how you pronounce that. It's cosplay, not cosplay. It is cosplay. Yeah, according to my children. Um, uh, is it, it, a, it is it a sex thing or no? <laughs> no, Jacob. Uh, I'm I'm appalled. But um, so no, it it has become easier and easier to to have these bounds between the real and the and the. Um, fictional uh blurred and again individually none of them are so terrible and spending 12 hours a day playing halo or or grand theft auto i guess isn't so terrible but but as uh, a thing the, the these forms of entertainment as you say when you know you're in the this unreal world okay but there's a lot of of blur i mean i i think for instance of the the the, the new york city cop who was tried and then acquitted uh of of online pretending he was going to murder and uh, eat women with his cohorts online. Oh, no, it was all a fantasy, no problem, and, and, and he didn't go to prison. So that's just an extreme example of how the lines between uh, fictional and, and uh, real art can da- blur, blur dangerously. Kurt, we have a, a small audience here in our Brooklyn studio from the Internet Advertising Bureau, which has put together uh, these leadership dialogues of this, which this uh, episode of Trumpcast is one as part of Advertising Week in New York. And I think they might be especially interested to hear whether advertising is part of American fantasy land. No, advertising is just <laughs> fine. Um, uh, yeah, sure it is. Of course it is. And, and advertising, while not... Uh, once again, has, doesn't exist explicitly in America. Uh, it was essentially invented as an industry in this country. And, and I go, as I go back, this is why this is a history that goes back. It didn't start in the 1960s. It didn't start in the 19-teens. Uh, I, I, I am always struck, especially by both P.T. Barnum, who, who became famous before he was a, and successful before he was a circus impresario as a, just a, a promoter, of the completely bogus and fake along with the real and making no distinction between them, like the mermaid he put on display along with an actual artifact from the, the Native Americans that he'd gotten from the West. Um, but Wait, he had a real mermaid? I, well, exactly. Uh, he put together a mermaid, and when he, in fact, when his, nat- mermaid. when his natural <laughs> exactly when his naturalist uh, advisor that he hired said, "But I, there are, I, I don't think that's a mermaid," and 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 uh, Barnum said, "Why?" He said, "Because I, I don't believe in mermaids." He said, "Well, that's no reason. I'm I'm putting it on display." So <laughs> Barnum was a very American character, but but what happened around the same time was uh, William Henry Harrison, the president, you know, who was president for about five minutes, um, was elected as the first fully advertised, marketed, merchandised candidate. In his case, they, they turned him from the rich guy that he had always been into the rough uh, log cabin man that he certainly was not and created all kinds of merchandise in the shapes of log cabin and so forth to make him uh, a populist. And it worked, even though he was a Whig, which is the elite party of the time. And so... Yeah, advertising has been there from the beginning. In fact, even for, then, that's why I kept going further back. There was an advertising campaign put on by the English investors in the New World, the British New World, to attract, to make, encourage people in England to move to this blank 
place that none of them knew what would be here or how they would survive. But that was an advertising campaign. And the historian Daniel Borstein said, and that helped shape American civilization, that we self-select for people who are prone to believe in advertising. Well, my take would be that now that advertising has gotten so much more efficient, this happens so often with systems where the inefficiencies get drummed out and the, unnecess- and the uh, unexpected consequence is that is sometimes nefarious. So, of course, with advertising, you know, the free press, when it was advertising-based, would essentially cover all these things that... You know, you couldn't prove people actually read. And now that you could prove what people are actually listening to or watching, what happens? There is no one covering City Hall because no one's reading it. It was just, you know, it was just trudging along as part of the newspaper because we couldn't really figure out which parts of the newspaper people were reading, right? Now that you have such targeted specific information on exactly what people are interested in, maybe it's exposing the entire idea of, you know, uh, advertising supported free press. This is why, I mean, to go off on a little tangent, this is why I think the future of something like public media or public radio and TV should be covering just local issues and the, and the courts and city councils. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I think you started this, you wrote most of this book before Trump was a th- he was a thing, but he wasn't a president thing. And, you know, <laughs> but, but it's being read and reviewed by most people as a book that explains how we got here, here being with Trump as president. Yeah. No, I turned in uh, this book, the manuscript for this book in May uh, of uh, last year before he was even nominated. He, he just was wrapping up the nomination. And in fact, I, was, I, was, I had gotten to the end chapters where I started talking about the present day politics at the beginning of last year, just as it looked like, wow, maybe he can really get the nomination. And woke up one morning and said to my wife, you know, I hate to say this, but getting the nomination could really be good for this book. And in <laughs> fact, uh, it, 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 even though I find him, uh, you know, because I am a member of the uh, elite, I guess, or as he would call it, although I'm not in any real sense, uh, I find him atrocious. It, it was an extraordinary uh, lucky timing on my part that uh, this embodiment and of, of everything I write about in this book, this whole history of almost every thread except for the uh, fervent Christianity – uh, is embodied by this one guy who 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 then uh, who has been elected president. Yeah. Well, when you say the embodiment, you mean somebody people fall for rather than someone who is a fantasist believer himself. Because Donald Trump, as best we can read, is an extreme cynic who doesn't believe in anything in particular. Well, as best we can see, but actually one of the things that scares me about him a lot is I'm not sure he couldn't pass... Uh, lie detector questions on a lot of the things, untrue things he says. I'm not sure he didn't initially believe that, say, Obama wiretapped him in Trump Tower. I'm not sure he didn't and maybe doesn't believe that there were three or five million illegals who voted against him. So, uh, yeah, he's a cynic. He is what he is, and to the point of fantasy, and is indifferent to the factual truth. He, he you know, I, liar, yeah, he lies about a lot of things. Cynic, sure. But, but he also, he just doesn't care whether a thing is true or not as long as the, the supposed fact serves his interests at the moment. And in addition to just the truth or falsehood, he is, as you know, I talked a lot about our history of conspiracy theories in America in this book, 
He is a promiscuous, profligate conspiracist. He entered politics um, as a birther, which, of course, involves this fictional conspiracy that somehow uh, kept us from knowing that Barack Obama was born elsewhere. Yeah, and he does have a lot in common with the people of Fantasyland, even though he would say, I'm sharper than the suckers. I mean, he has exhibited an inability to deploy critical thinking. When uh, a fact or so-called fact helps his case, he seems to jump on it. He probably thinks it's true. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if P.T. Barnum was actually Well, no, like, he, he, is, he is like Barnum, although I, I kind of love Barnum for all his... Who was a politician. Well, he was a politician. Briefly. If it was 100 years later, you might love Trump the same way. Maybe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's too soon to love Trump. But, but, but yeah. Barnum, to his credit, was able to, to wink and say, you know, uh, maybe a little humbug here and there, but so what? Um, interestingly, Barnum, though, uh, instead of, of, of embracing the... the uh, fervent Christians, as um, uh, Donald Trump uh, who, uh, has, those who support him, as a young man, he, he was a great agitator against what he thought was a terrible uh, uh, storm of religious zealotry that was driving uh, everybody crazy in America during the what was called the Second Great Awakening. Well, maybe you could say he was like Houdini in that he saw them as competition for his act. Well, and who, again, as I mentioned in the book, Houdini was a great passionate debunker of, yeah. of, of spiritualists who claim to talk to the dead. So I think it's fair to say that you helped to make Trump famous in the 1980s as the co-founder <laughs> and editor of, of uh, Spy Magazine. I mean, I, I think I first knew about Trump. I wasn't from New York. I mean, I maybe heard of him, but the first place I read about him was in Spy. And of course, you and uh, Graydon Carter famously started what we would now call the meme of the small hands. The short-fingered vulgarian yeah. Donald Trump. We, 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 we had both worked at Time Magazine, which back in the day before we worked there, specialized in those kinds of epithets, beady-eyed commie and so forth. Um, and we just loved them as, as, as kind of old-fashioned uh, journalistic anachronisms. So we started doing that at Spy about people, uh, calling people, oh, Henry Kissinger, we called a, uh, we, every time we referred to Henry Kissinger, we said socialite war criminal Henry Kissinger <laughs> um, and, and so forth. And it was fun. A uh, fun way to ridicule people. And uh, and Donald Trump, we tried out a whole bunch before we hit on the one that really stuck, which was short-fingered Bulgarian uh, Donald Trump. And then, of course, when that became suddenly a thing, a meme in this election and being debated on stage during a debate, it was like uh, an acid flashback. I, I really, I, 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 if, if, I had, if I had coffee in my mouth, I would have done a spit take at that moment. So, so unlike the tabloids, which covered him, but also sometimes heaped praise or what he would consider praise on him, had a complicated relationship. Spy was consistently withering in its criticism, but you did cover him a lot. He was a delicious character. So when people put it to Jeff Zucker, you know, why do you put Trump on CNN so much during the primaries? He could say, but look at the kind of coverage we give him. And if you hate Trump, this is this would be the CNN argument. Don't a lot of your opinions come from the reporting that we've provi provided to allow you to draw that conclusion? So taking yourself as like a little tiny version of what CNN did. Well, except, <laughs> except Mike. <laughs> uh, in 1987, 1988, 1990, when he was a uh, almost bankrupt uh, casino operator and, and, and real estate uh, developer, is, is, is giving him attention then, uh, I, I would have to be more prescient than I am to say, we can't do this 
because one day <laughs> he'll run for president, right. and we're just making him famous. But he was talking about running for office. He as was early. No, as indeed, and we we talked about that, and we ironically and sarcastically begged him to run for president. You declined to take him seriously. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, is, is it a is it a myth that uh, he once had a little bit of a sense of humor about himself? I mean, I remember he was really angry about your coverage, right? He, he, I guess he was. Did he was. sue I, you? Did he ever he, see? No, he, he threatened more than once massive litigation in the <laughs> letters he sent us on his very, very, very thick stationery. Um, but he never actually sued us. Um, and then, strangely, as soon as uh, w- both Graydon and I were gone from Spy, Graydon, as editor of Vanity Fair, was invited to a wedding or two of his. And, and as soon as I was editor of New York Magazine, he couldn't have been publicly nicer about me. So... And again, and then as soon as I was fired from New York Magazine, he couldn't have been like, yeah, I hated the guy. He was terrible about me, which, again, I think we all see that, uh, that, that the Donald Trump we know today being entirely contingent on whether somebody is nice or could be nice to him or not uh, is, is, is guides how he feels about them. No, so there is this relationship with him. Uh, I, I, I guess I, you know, I, he, is he Moriarty and we're Sherlock Holmes? I don't know. <laughs> did, did he consistently demonstrate any skills 20 and 25 years ago that he hasn't shown in the past few years? Skills? I don't know. I, I think he was, he, he, he did not rage publicly the way he does now he seemed to me happier uh or able to to display happiness in a way that one doesn't see today even 15 years ago uh long after i was paying much attention to him errol morris the documentarian did this great little film about him that was going to be part of the oscars one year uh about his favorite film and why it was his favorite film and he, he, he talks about citizen kane in an intelligent, <laughs> thoughtful way that you cannot believe this guy uh, that is our president uh, could do. And it wasn't that long ago. So, so, but being able to be stick to an idea for a few minutes, I guess that's a skill we don't mm-hmm. see much um, these days. Well, you covered it on the show. I mean, the linguist, was it a linguist who, as you know, they, she looked at some of his past talk show appearances and she just uh, put her finger on a degradation in the vocabulary, in the thought process. Now, I was listening to that interview and I kind of thought he's, when he's on the Charlie Rose show, maybe he's playing to a different audience than he is now. And also he is 71, but maybe there's something to it. Maybe he has lost mental acuity over the years. There, there is some evidence. I mean, these linguists will now study speech patterns as, as markers for Alzheimer's, and they can actually see very clearly with Reagan when it started to kick in in the last few years of his presidency right. because your sentences get shorter and your vo- vocabulary gets smaller and you, you stop expressing complex thoughts. But I thought the case about Trump was interesting, but it's pretty ambiguous. I mean— he talks the way I talk when I don't get six hours sleep, right. you know, it's, and it's being 71 and being kind of, you know, stretched pretty thin. I don't know. And, I do mean, you, and do you remember, I think it was Todd Gitlin who came out with the book during the Bush presidency, trying to, I think it was a whole book, at least an article, trying to show that his syntax fell apart when he was talking to crowds he wasn't comfortable with, like the uh, NAACP or so. I just think possibly we uh, play phrenology with the presidents we, did, we don't like. Well, one thing, certainly as an observer of his in the 80s and 90s, that he wasn't so much then, with the one exception of saying that the five young men accused of the Central Park rape should be executed and who were later exonerated, except for that ugly example, he did not step into the the nativist 
racist swamps that he does so often, has right. so often as a candidate. And I'm interested in that because I, I don't think he probably thought of, I, I don't think that was a riff of his much. I think once he saw, whoa, that, this is working, not only does he, did he then proceed to do it because it worked for him, but I think he discovered his, his latent inner bigot. Probably. Well, I have a theory about that, which is that he always wants the crowd he's with, the uh, little social uh, milieu that he's with to like him. So he'll say what they want to hear. And when he's dealing with, you know, celebrities in New York, they don't want to hear that. When he's dealing with the Breitbart crowd, they do. Whatever sells at that moment. Yeah, it's, it's purely transactional. But I think people on the, on the left sometimes find it hard to accept this. But if the political opportunity had been on the left, Trump would be on the left. And his argument might well be yes. the opposite, might be anti-racist, might be pro-immigration. Well, he campaigned on the, the most, the most left-wing version of health care possible. He never said single-payer, but it sure sounded like Medicare for all to me. And, but then, of course, uh, he's done nothing to go there uh, as president. But, and let's just say, if the opportunity were on the left, to the left's credit, it's not. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Fair, fair point. So I guess a, a you know a bigger question, Kurt, is if Trump is the sort of culmination of 500 years of, of fantasy land, and I think you make a persuasive argument about that. How does fantasy land end? How do we get out of fantasy land? Well, Jacob, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not certain of that. And, and and the thing is, since I wrote this book and finished it, assuming that Donald Trump would not be president, he he is while he is a great illustration of most of what I'm talking about. It doesn't fantasy. We don't get out of fantasy land when the Donald Trump administration is over. I believe everything I say in here would have been just as true had Hillary Clinton become president. It just wouldn't be as holy cow, uh, uh, spectacularly uh, evident to people, I think. So how do we get out of here? I think by um, I'm not making a joke by having entities like Slate exist, having public media exist. Uh, having the main, the good mainstream media exist, uh, those are all ways that the, the 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 tide of facts don't matter, alternative facts, putting up, rebuilding the levees and dams that used to keep all that hogwash out of the mainstream is important, and we do it in our private lives. We 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 teach our children and grandchildren that it's important to distinguish from the factually true and the and the untrue as it is to behave wisely or uh, rather than foolishly or or be good rather than bad i th i think it's i think we have to in, in our lives and if we have any kind of public platform there uh stop being squishy and stop saying yeah well uh, that's one way of looking at it when it's when it's not one legitimate way of looking at it you know I, so but are we are is it all going to go be good again mm, no and let's talk for a few minutes about podcasting. Studio 360, the long-running public radio show, is now here at Slate. It's also still a long-running public radio show on 238 stations around the country. <laughs> but 50 of those are in Wyoming, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, if you count the ones in Alaska, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of small stations. No, it's on a lot of stations. That's how I, I've always listened to it. Um, but now Mike and I have this mission to uh, sell everybody on the on the advantages of podcasting. Oh, and I, I, we're a candy mint and a breath mint, Jacob. <laughs> 
We're a podcast and a radio show. What do you think's different? I mean, you've you've had a chance. It's really been just a few weeks since your your team, production team, moved over here. But you're surrounded by people who make podcasts and don't do radio. You were previously surrounded by people who came out of radio and were trying to figure out podcasting. So, what have you noticed that's different? Well, one of one of the reasons I wanted to uh, do this affiliation, other than being with you and Mike as much as I could because I love you both so very much, is that there is a kind of uh, excellent down and dirty, dirty, like, let's just do this. This happened, let's do this uh, attitude toward making audio. Um, let's get smart people and let's have them talk about this. Um, as well as, uh, you know, when, when you decide to do it with more uh, a forethought and production value, like in the case of Malcolm Gladwell's great podcast, uh, Revisionist History, um, but mostly that, 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 that just kind of guerrilla, let's go out there today and, and, and talk about what happened yesterday is, is incredibly exciting to me because it's not the kind of radio we were making. We, we, we make our, we, because it's a weekly show, it's, it's a highly uh, sound designed magazine-like old school, uh, like a sports car rather than the 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 other kind of of instantly made machine that podcasts tend to be so I just love that uh, frankly and um, uh, I, I you know one one of the in addition to the f- f- fact that you have fine good studios and all that I, I I love being embedded in this place that seems on our wavelength uh, that sh- in so many ways that shares our sensibility in so many ways so it's it's that. Um, I also, I mean, in a way that was never really as true as it feels here in in, in our former uh, public radio uh, land where we were embedded, this sense that, oh, wait, we have this idea and it could run six episodes, it could run 10 episodes, it could be a regular segment on our show. That sense of opportunity is thrilling to me. And and that, that you have people that understand as... I and my amazing team don't how that can be made real. Uh, the, 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 the flexibility of the, the podcast as a way of delivering content makes me giddy, frankly. So many people in, in uh, the podcasting world come out of public radio. Mike Pesca is a very good example. Started on, on the media, if I'm not mistaken. We're uh, one of the many talent farms at WNYC, uh, as is Studio 360. But people tend to analogize uh, public radio to podcasting as parallel to print and digital, you know, and then and we're, we're sort of familiar with the story of the legacy media, the new media, and the one is seen as threatening the other. But it maybe it will be different with audio, I mean, one thing that's very noticeable is how dominant the public radio programming is in the podcasting charts. What do, what do you think is going to happen in terms of the evolution of public radio around podcasting? Well, to me, rather than print versus digital, disagree with me if you disagree, Mike, but I, I see the analogy more as, as public radio was to commercial radio. That's more like what podcasting is to public radio, which is to say one doesn't wipe out the other. It's just an interesting, different, in some ways better version of the last uh, uh, form. So, no, I think they, I, I, I believe they coexist, although, of course, you know, digital is got the future, and, and that doesn't mean that terrestrial radio will disappear tomorrow any more than it means that print magazines will disappear tomorrow. But 
if tomorrow is 50 years from now, probably so. Yeah, I think it, I, th I like your analogy better, Jacob, because I think that comparing public uh, radio to commercial, especially with, you know, 10 years and since then, commercial radio is terrible. It's just flat out terrible. So, and that, and that was not really true. I mean, print was always excellent. It's not like there was a, a lessening in the quality of the print. It's just that the uh, economics of it began to disintegrate. And that, I think, is what's going on in public radio. The economic model of public radio, I don't see how it obtains in 10 and 15 years. It right. basically depends on NPR holding, oh, I don't want to say holding hostage, but getting fees from a station all based on playing it over an antenna. Like these, All these words are out of the 20th century, not the 21st. But they are also... Uh, and God bless grandfathering, grandfathered brands and great shows. I mean, This American Life. Yeah, the quality it, of them and, is amazing. And serial out of that, I think, is an extraordinary example of how it's not dead and gone and will be replaced four years from now by, by podcasting. Uh, and by the way, when, when public radio began in the 1970s, there was lots of great uh, commercial radio. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But but some of the some of the shows I think have been kind of uh superseded. I mean, since the New York Times Daily started coming out, I haven't listened to Morning Edition once cuz now when I listen to Morning Edition, the pacing just seems slow and the, and these podcasts like the Daily are so informationally dense. You get so much out of them in such a brief period of time that I just feel as a consumer I'm better served by them. I think that's I like right. them better too. I, I yeah. think that's right. And and there's still tremendous room for growth. On the one hand, I remember the first time somebody said to me, a young person, of course, said to me, oh, I love your podcast in 2009. I go, what? It's a radio show, young man. Um, <laughs> uh, but t still today, <laughs> there are plenty of people, uh, and not just older people, but a lot of them, who uh, still ha are, have not uh, adopted the podcast habit. So I think what you're saying is correct about, oh, wait, this is, this is more nimble and exciting and interesting and rich with information than I'm Robert Siegel, and the, you know, as great as Robert Siegel and, 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 and All Things Considered in Morning Edition are. I, I think they, it is the next uh, stage of that kind of uh, news delivery. I just think there's lots of room for adoption yet. I mean, it's, it's still early days. Public radio has so many constituencies they have to satisfy. I mean, the whole reason it exists is to serve someone else other than the producers of public radio. And of course, it's necessarily bureaucratic. So yes, it's not going to be as niche. It's not going to talk to a specific audience as much, which is, uh, which is one of its hindrances. Yet at the same time, if you add up every podcast in the world... Uh, that is not also a radio station, it can't go up against the international bureaus of NPR, let alone the BBC. Here's what it's like. It's like cable versus network in television, a little bit, right? I mean, we, we, you know, you're making Mad Men and we're making... Okay, uh, right. I thought you made cable news, but you're <laughs> right. No, yes. break, no forget <laughs> cable news. <laughs> yes. uh, we're making Breaking Bad, and, but, but you know, we're not a great, huge CBS show. 
The, right. uh, the the generation gap is as stark as I've seen around media. When I'm talking, if, if I'm at a cocktail party, I'm talking to someone over 50. I mean, I'm 53, but I happen to be wor- working on it. And I start, I use the word podcasting. I can see their eyes glaze over. And I know that nothing I say will get them to ever listen to a podcast. Maybe if I harangue them at great length. Uh, and with millennials, you say the word podcasting and they start telling you about the, sh- the 17 shows they li- listen to. I mean, they get all their information that way. It also doesn't have that that quotation marks uh that scare quotation mark thing that twitter still does and blog did for so long uh, among young people certainly that that podcast is is legit that's just a that's just a word yeah i moved from the upper east side to brooklyn and now every time i go out to eat or every third time there's a conversation next to me about podcasts they said that never happened on the upper east side <laughs> on on the note that we're legit I think I'm going to say that's it for today's show. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank Faith Smith, Kirsten Holtz, Jason Gambrell, and everybody involved in putting the show together today. I'd also like to thank Randy Rothenberg and the Internet Advertising Bureau for being our guests here at Slate and Panoply's Brooklyn Studios. Trumpcast was produced today by Jason DeLeon. And for Mike Pesca and Kurt Anderson, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to our locally live Trumpcast. Thank you.